Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 58, Realignment. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Having trouble both getting to sleep and trouble staying awake indicates that you may be misaligned. In this week's episode, I discuss a case of circadian misalignment, what can happen when the body's internal clock is in disagreement with life's obligations, and what we can do to fix that. Recently, a young man came to my sleep clinic somewhat distraught. His sleep woes, it seemed, were ruining his life, including his ability to hold a job. This poor young man was desperately tired during the day, even, unfortunately, nodding off while at work, and he sometimes had trouble getting into work on time due to trouble just getting up in the morning and getting out of bed and out the door and he really struggled at night, having trouble falling asleep in the first place, waking across the night, and having trouble getting back to sleep. Sometimes he wouldn't be able to fall asleep at all, or achieve very little sleep for two, three, or four days in a row. This would be followed by the inevitable crash, where he may sleep for 20 to 25 hours straight. You can imagine how difficult this must be for someone to go through, sleep never seeming to come when it's supposed to, and instead arriving at the most inopportune time. His mood and behavior were being affected and his parent had to step in and help him through this ordeal. He was in pretty rough shape. Generally, in clinical sleep practice, patients can experience one of two problems. Primarily, having trouble achieving sleep in quantity or quality, or primarily having trouble with staying awake. The former are classic problems like insomnia and sleep disruptors like sleep disordered breathing or restless legs. The latter are known as hypersomnias, or an excessive sleepiness disorder, The most well-known is narcolepsy. And it's not uncommon for people struggling with overnight sleep to have daytime consequences that include sleepiness, but that's not their primary complaint. It's also not uncommon for individuals with narcolepsy to have disrupted sleep, but that's not their primary complaint. So when I hear a story where both sides of the sleep-wake yin-yang coin are nearly equally affected, it usually means one thing. Not a primary insomnia or a primary hypersomnia, but rather a mixture of both due to circadian misalignment. We've talked about circadian health repeatedly, from issues with light to the problems of daylight savings. But when circadian rhythm is not just a little disturbed by a couple hours, like what can happen in delayed sleep-wake phase syndrome or social jet lag, as discussed in episode 22 and 23, but rather, when circadian rhythms are all out of whack, that's when you get the symptom complex like this young man. Where essentially there is such profound misalignment between what life is demanding of you and when versus when your body thinks it is that nothing seems to work right. And even worse, 
Because of irregular exposure to timekeeping cues, these zeitgeibers mentioned repeatedly, that the body's circadian rhythm may not be consistently misaligned in the same way, but constantly rotating and essentially becoming misaligned in a brand new way every day, the internal clock only occasionally lining up more effectively with external clock. This, you can imagine, can seem like a living hell. Constantly trying to be awake when your body is telling you that you need to be sleeping, and constantly attempting to sleep when your body is telling you that you need to be awake. It's a walking nightmare. But thankfully, there is an end to this nightmare. There are ways to effectively alleviate this suffering. As discussed in episode 41 and elsewhere, we are equipped with a flexible system. The circadian rhythm is malleable, and for good reason. The length of the day, as measured by daylight, changes across seasons and across geography, and we are built to adapt to these changes. We are able to push, pull, contract, or extend our internal clocks to meet the demands of our evolving environments. But our internal clocks can also be manipulated against our will all too easily, leading to the kind of suffering this poor young man experienced. But that built-in flexibility, the adjustability of our circadian clocks, can also be used to reset the clocks, realign them so our internal rhythm better matches our external needs, and we can regain harmony. So where do we even begin? This is a case where we need to start with data. We need to know where we stand before we intervene, or risk only making things worse. Sleep clinicians have a handful of sleep studies at our disposal, as discussed in episode 38 on Sleep Studies 101. But in a case like this, we don't want the microscopic detail from a single-night polysomnogram, the traditional sleep study, but rather the 30,000-foot view. What we really want to know is the natural sleep-wake pattern, to get the best sense of when and where the individual's internal clock is set and running. We do this with an assessment called actigraphy. These are wrist-worn devices that monitor movement and light exposure, very similar to the consumer sleep trackers discussed in episode 39, but that have passed the muster of vigorous FDA clearance process to validate their accuracy. Finding the pattern is important to identify the natural sleep midpoint. The natural midpoint is key, because that midpoint can change depending on forced awakening, such as from an alarm that is not aligned with one's natural rhythm, as in the case with this young man. This is more easily seen when someone is sleeping ad lib. They go to bed or wake as they please, without constraints. That's not always possible when one still has ongoing work or school obligations, so we do the best that we can. Another accurate way would be to test what's known as DILMO, or Dim Light Melatonin Onset. This is the rise in melatonin in anticipation of one's sleep period. This too can be quite tricky. It's not too hard to check melatonin levels in saliva or melatonin breakdown products in urine. The tricky part is in the name itself, Dim Light. Melatonin is released in the brain from the pituitary gland specifically, and its release is blocked by exposure to light. There are specialized cells in the back of the eye that have nothing to do with vision, but instead transmit information about light levels to the brain. Unlike the rods and cones for vision, these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, or IPRGCs, send their signal to the brain's master clock, the circadian pacemaker, in a place called the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus, and from there, into the pituitary gland where melatonin is hanging out, waiting to be released. All these neuroanatomy names can be quite a mouthful, but it's important to understand that these specialized cells prevent the brain from releasing melatonin in the presence of light, or basically anything more than very dim light. Melatonin is essentially scheduled to be released about 16 hours or so after you first wake up and are exposed to light. 
But as you approach that time, if the bright lights are still on, still triggering these IPGRCs in the back of the eye, then the brake signal is still being sent to the master clock pacemaker. Meaning that when the eyes are exposed to continued bright light at night, the body's internal rhythm is delayed. The body's expected nighttime gets pushed later and later. The light prevents the release of melatonin on time, leading to this delay. So trying to check melatonin levels when someone's under a spotlight, even if it's their natural bedtime, you're going to be disappointed. That's because the exposure to light itself is suppressing the release of melatonin. So we have a couple imperfect measurement systems here. First, checking sleep-wake patterns with actigraphy, which may not reflect true body rhythms unless someone is allowed to go to bed and wake freely. And second, monitoring melatonin levels for the natural rise that should occur at night at the beginning of the natural sleep period to find out exactly when that is. But that can easily be manipulated if environmental light conditions are not strictly controlled. Taking swabs of saliva melatonin levels dozens of times across each day is not exactly practical, so we rely more on someone's report of when they feel best to fall asleep and wake up, along with the actigraphy data. We use this information, as imperfect as it is, to calculate their average sleep midpoint. No fancy formula here, it's just halfway between when someone naturally falls asleep and naturally wakes up. This is highly important, because as we discussed in episode 23 on social jet lag, intervening on the wrong side of that midpoint can have disastrous consequences for one's sleep. Our sensitivities to different zeitgeibers, these time givers, that sensitivity fluctuates across the 24-hour period. And since light is the most potent zeitgeiber, that's what we're most concerned about. Right around the sleep midpoint, there is a shift in how the body's internal clock responds to light. And the closer to that shift point, the midpoint of sleep, the stronger that effect is. So bright light exposure 12 hours from your sleep midpoint has negligible effects. But bright light exposure just one hour from your midpoint has a much more highly pronounced effect. And the direction of that effect changes depending on what side of the sleep midpoint that exposure takes place. Exposure to bright light shortly before your expected midpoint of sleep will delay your internal clock more than two hours in just a matter of minutes. And exposure to bright light shortly after your expected sleep midpoint will shift your internal clock earlier by two hours. So when we think about how to use light to readjust someone's schedule, early light pushes to delay the internal clock, later light pulls to advance the internal clock. Melatonin does the opposite, and with less gusto. Earlier melatonin will pull to advance the internal clock, and later melatonin will push to delay the internal clock. And the magnitude of these shifts from melatonin is only about 25%, or about 30 minutes max in either direction, compared to the potency of light to shift the internal clock. Okay, so we've got someone with issues both getting to sleep at the desired time, and trouble staying awake at the desired time due to this misalignment of his internal clock compared to what his external environment clocks are demanding of him. In order to effectively intervene to help alleviate this suffering caused by the misalignment, we need to know what direction the intervention will drive his internal clock, and the direction depends on what side of his sleep midpoint that intervention is experienced. We have a couple imperfect options, and the most commonly utilized is with actigraphy, FDA-cleared medical devices validated to detect sleep-wake patterns. Hopefully, the sleep tracker is worn when he is sleeping and waking freely, without any interference from external demands like waking at the wrong time from an alarm. We use this sleep-wake pattern to find the sleep midpoint. Then, whether we push later or pull earlier the internal clock depends on where his internal clock is in relation to the needed alignment. So, for instance, if he needs to wake up by 6 a.m. for work and believes he functions best after 8 hours in bed, 
his target sleep midpoint would be about 2 a.m. But if we see that currently his sleep midpoint average is 6 a.m., it's probably easier to back up his circadian rhythm the four hours earlier over the course of several days. But if instead his current sleep midpoint is 10 a.m., we may pursue a different route. For most of us, our natural internal day is longer than 24 hours. Not by a ton, typically just about 12 minutes, give or take. But advancing our internal clock means shortening our internal day to less than 24 hours, so we are already fighting about a fifth of an hour headwind from the get-go. On the other hand, whenever we intervene to delay the internal clock, we are trying to lengthen the internal day. And for the most part, we are already starting with about a fifth of an hour tailwind advantage. So even though it may seem better to just advance his internal clock earlier by 8 hours, it's probably easier practically to delay his internal clock by 16 hours instead. So knowing that current sleep midpoint is key, because that's going to determine whether we realign internal with external clocks by staying up later or by going to sleep earlier. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that with actigraphy tracking during ad-lib sleep and wake, with no alarms or external manipulation of sleep, we see this young man falling asleep generally around 5 to 7 a.m., and generally waking about 1 to 3 p.m., with an average sleep midpoint around 10 a.m. And in order to get to work, he needs to be up around 6 a.m. to get ready and commute to arrive on time. First, can you appreciate how tortured this young soul is? Imagine every night trying to fall asleep 8 hours before you are ready. Think you'd fall asleep with the drop of a hat? Probably not. Trying to sleep during these times is nearly impossible at worst, and a mighty struggle at best. Then finally, right as your body is actually ready to get that good snooze, the alarm goes off, and it's time to get up and get ready for work. Then for nearly your entire shift, your body is begging for sleep. It's literally supposed to be sleeping that whole time. That's agony. Okay, so we see he's about 8 hours off from where he'd like to be. And while the math would suggest it would be easier to just back him up by 8 hours, it ends up being far better to just delay him 16 hours instead. We do this by having him try to stay awake a couple hours later than his ad-lib schedule, and not be woken up prematurely, such as by an alarm, and delaying any exposure to bright light after waking as much as possible. So for instance, day one may look like trying to stay awake till about 8am by keeping exposed to bright light until the intended sleep time. Day two, trying to stay awake till about 10am with bright light till then. Day three, trying to stay awake till about noon, and so on, gradually shifting the schedule back a couple hours at a time till coming full circle after about a week. Once approaching the desired sleep-wake schedule, we need to be mindful of backing off our push of light right before sleep, and start thinking about anchors to maintain the new desired rhythm in place. So on day seven and onward, we're not staying exposed to bright light right up until the sleep period, but easing off the light an hour or so prior to bed. And shortly after waking, starting to expose our eyes and these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells to light, to smash the break on melatonin and send that strong time-to-wake signal. Once having reached the desired schedule, we need to keep that realignment with bright morning light, and with only dim light exposure in the last hour or more prior to bed, but also locking in other zeitgeibers, or cues for our internal clock. Meals would be a simple one. Now that sleep and wake have stabilized, Lock in a time for breakfast every morning, a consistent time for lunch every midday, and a reliable time for dinner each evening. Getting movement and physical exercise in at the same time every day also helps a lot. 
The physical activity at work may satisfy some of this, but exercise would be even more helpful, with that added power to improve sleep quality each night and improve daytime alertness. The social engagement each day at work would also help. So, with a little bit of digging, we can go from a life in chaos, map out the degree to which the internal and external clocks are misaligned, and then use that information to guide these clocks back into synchrony and lock them into place with simple routines. So to summarize, it's very easy to get our clocks all out of sorts. Our circadian rhythms have a lot of flexibility, and it's easy for that flexibility to get us in trouble. Many adolescents gravitate toward the evening chronotype, the night owl, and if not dealt with, can continue to worsen and become even more out of alignment with life's daily requirements. Early experience in the workforce can be disastrous when we are misaligned. A young man recently came to my office with just such an experience, an experience of incredible suffering on both sides of the yin-yang of wake and sleep, trouble falling asleep at desired times, and trouble staying awake at desired times. And the root cause? Circadian misalignment. His body's internal clock too far out of alignment with his life obligations, leading to significant difficulty at work. Thankfully, these same flexible circadian systems can be flexed to our advantage. Understanding the set position of the misaligned clock can be helped by the use of tools like actigraphy, as discussed in episode 38 on sleep studies. Once the average unconstrained sleep and wake times are known, we can make a plan to pull earlier or push later the internal clock using the strongest of zeitgeibers, the cue of bright light. And once pulled a few hours earlier or pushed later all the way around the clock, the newly realigned circadian rhythm must be locked into place to prevent any further sway. The anchor of consistent wake-up time seven days a week, bright morning light shortly after waking, consistent meal times and activity, and consistently dimming the lights when approaching bedtime all help to lock in those gains. If you haven't already, go check out wellrestedmd.com slash day, where you can get a special download, a totally free cheat sheet. In this day of the life of the well-rested download, you'll find examples and timing of several morning and evening routines, the evidence-based best practices for wakeful days and restful nights. So head over to wellrestedmd.com day to see these best practices in action. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave a review and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information, including the option to sign up for email updates. Thanks for listening.